Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Hematology. Two experts in myelofibrosis, Professor John Mascarenas and Dr. Rajit Rompol, both from New York, USA, respond to questions from the hematology and oncology clinical communities. The question topics cover... What are the key considerations when selecting a JAK inhibitor for first-line therapy in myelofibrosis? What side effects are associated with JAK inhibitor use in myelofibrosis and how can they be managed? What are the options following treatment failure on a first-line JAK inhibitor in patients with myelofibrosis? This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Hello, and welcome to Optimizing Outcomes of Jack Inhibition in Myelofibrosis, Practical Considerations for the Clinic. I'm Rajit Rampal from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, John Mascarenas from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. So this is a uh, touch and conversation activity, and today we're going to discuss optimizing outcomes of JAK inhibition and myelofibrosis, and really to focus on the practical considerations for how to utilize JAK inhibitors. We'll begin by talking about what are the key considerations when selecting a JAK inhibitor for first-line therapy in myelofibrosis. So as a backdrop, when we think about uh, myelofibrosis, we are thinking about this as a spectrum of disease. And there are patients who are going to do well for a decade or more, and there are patients who are going to have progression of their disease early on. How do we prognosticate that? Well, we have several prognostic models that we can use. And these tools can really roughly be divided into two categories. There are tools that rely principally on clinical characteristics, and then there are those that now incorporate molecular uh, diagnostics, which we think gives us a little bit more of an enhanced way to look at uh, prognosis. In regards to the tools that we have that uh, use uh, the clinical characteristics, we have the International Prognostic Scoring System, or IPSS, which is meant to be used at diagnosis only. And then we have the DIPSS and the DIPSS Plus, both which can be used at any time during treatment. The, great, the components that really are in all of these scoring systems include an age greater than 65, the presence of blast cells in the circulation, and the amount of blast cells really uh, varies in terms of their impact in the different scoring systems. The uh, presence of constitutional symptoms, uh, the presence of mutations, of uh, driver mutations or other mutations in the molecularly driven scoring systems, uh, the presence of anemia, the presence of thrombocytopenia, principally in the DIPSS+, and an elevated white count of greater than 25,000. So we identify patients who are in low risk, intermediate, or high risk uh, for disease progression. In terms of how we treat patients, the, it's important to realize that the IPSS and the DIPSS scores don't actually tell us how to treat the patient. Rather, they tell us about the prognosis, and in many ways, they can inform whether or not we should think about a stem cell transplant. But as it pertains to JAK inhibitors, when we think about how to treat patients, if somebody has spleen or symptom issues and their platelets are over 50,000, then we think about uh, the use of JAK inhibitors. And currently, two JAK inhibitors are approved for patients with a platelet count greater than 50,000. Those are ruxolitinib and fedratinib, and we're going to talk about those in detail uh, in a few moments. And for patients with a platelet count of less than 50,000, picritinib is now FDA approved uh, to be used in this setting. And of course, we always want to think about clinical trials uh, given the natural history of this disease. So, John, a lot of things to consider here. 
first uh, question maybe is, you know, what are the factors that you consider when choosing between the three different approved JAK inhibitors that we've talked about and the first line treatment for patients with myelofibrosis? So I think the probably the most obvious um, node of decision making is what is the platelet count. Platelet count really determines the initial consideration for JAK inhibitor therapy. So less than fifty thousand, picritinib is clearly the only drug that's approved in that patient population. So that's an easy one. I think it gets a little bit more tricky when it's you know fifty to seventy five thousand, fifty to hundred thousand. One could use picritinib based on the persist two data, um, but one could use ruxolinib approved. In 2011, uh, with data in the 50,000 range, uh, but also fedratinib, uh, which in the Jakarta studies allowed um, four patients with 50,000 greater. So there is overlap there in that patient population, uh, but platelet count really determines the initial thought process. And then, considering the toxicity profiles may differ a little bit, so there's you know there is more uh, on-target GI toxicity with the FLT3 uh, inhibition pathway seen with both picritinib and fedratinib. So if I have patients who have you know, serious um, concurrent GI illnesses, maybe IBD, IBS, things that might already be uh, problematic that might influence my decision making in terms of um, GI toxicity. But generally speaking, I think platelet count is really the determining factor. And increasingly, we're paying attention to anemia. Um, and there is data that picritinib um, does have an anemia response. And of course, um, the community is expecting an approval for mamalotinib, in which um, there is uh, data for anemia responses. Um, but we don't know what the label will look like. So I would still say uh, in 2023, platelet count is probably the deciding factor for selection of a JAK inhibitor. Great. No, and I totally agree with that. And, and obviously, patients' comorbidities and to some degree preferences. Another question that, that I think comes up frequently is, is what's the ultimate goal of, of JAK inhibitor treatment in myelofibrosis? And, and is it different for different patients? I think it might be different for different patients because the reality is patients are quite different. When you when you encounter patients with myelofibrosis, they rarely look the same. There's a lot of variability in heterogeneity in the way they present, their clinical course. Um, so the treatment does have to be tailored for what that patient is experiencing. For some patients, it's mostly spleen and spleen-related complaints. For other patients, it may be systemic symptoms. And for some patients, it could be both. And then there are a subgroup of patients where they really are more of a bone marrow failure state, almost like an MDS picture where anemia is really the, the, the treatment goal and less spleen symptoms. So you have to tailor, and that really just you know, requires a conversation with the patient. What is the treatment goal? Set expectations, reasonable expectations, and then talk through the, you know, the timeline or the kinetics of expecting response and then the potential for toxicity that might offset some of that, that, that response. Um, you know, I think... For the most part, we give JAK inhibitors to reduce spleen and improve symptoms, and that is typically the primary and secondary endpoints of these pivotal studies. I'm always cautious not to oversell the idea that there's a survival benefit uh, with these drugs, although I do believe there's a survival benefit. It is not for the, the classic uh, reasons in oncology where one gets a, a histopathologic remission, a complete molecular remission. Um, the bone marrows, for the most part, stay the same. So we're really looking at probably survival benefit that is driven by improvements in symptom burden, performance status, reversal of cachexia, um, and patients who move and eat um, are likely to just live longer than patients who don't. There is probably some effect uh, from the anti-inflammatory component of these drugs that probably does offset some, some disease-related um, progression. But unfortunately, you know, it, it's, it's very hard to measure, as you know very well. So you know, although I do, I do point out that patients who are treated with JAK inhibitors are likely to live longer than patients who don't, it's not really the primary reason that uh, we prescribe the drug. 
So I think it, it's, it's maybe safe to say MF is not a monolithic disease and JAK inhibitors are not a monolithic category of drugs. Next question that also is, I think, important in how we think about these drugs are, you know, what are the, the key efficacy data and dosing considerations, importantly, as they pertain to platelet count, right, uh, for the improved uh, approved JAK inhibitors? And, and how does that influence your, your uh, choice of treatment? Well, I mean, we, we have some differences for sure amongst these JAK inhibitors. So ruxolinib is probably the most complex in terms of dosing. Um, as there are doses of 5, 10, 15, 20, and 25 milligrams that are, are based on the platelet count. And I really don't think that most prescribers really utilize the FDA label and nomogram for platelet. There were, um, in the clinical trials that were the pivotal trials that led to the approval, there were um, uh, instructions for how to dose based on platelet count. I typically will use RUX at a low dose and then titrate up to try to maximize Jack inhibition um, through spleen reduction as the as the uh, clinical outcome measure. You know, sort of realizing that we are going to get treatment emergent thrombocytopenia that ultimately limits the ability to to raise the dose um, to some extent. Now, what's interesting is, and of course, it's a BID dosing. What's interesting is fidratinib um, at 400 milligrams daily, which is the approved dose, can be used whether your platelet count is 55,000 or 455,000. It does you know, allow for some ease of administration. And it comes as 100 milligram capsules. So you prescribe four, you know, capsules once a day you know, with, with, a, with a heavy meal uh, for absorption purposes. And that does provide a little bit more ease of administration. Um, and that's a consideration when dosing patients with, with bedratinib. Um, we still got to follow the platelet counts. You know, you can see that there's still some treatment immersion, thrombocytopenia and anemia that does occur with uh, fedratinib. That actually looks, you know, not too dissimilar from ruxolinib, I would say. Um, and then for picritinib, it's also a fixed dose of 200 milligrams twice daily, and that is approved for less than 50,000 platelets. So you're really using it at the full dose, and the studies would suggest you maintain dose intensity no matter what the platelet count is because you do not get the same degree of thrombocytopenia. So you know, one needs to um, be aware, of the, obviously, of the, of the dosing, uh, but follow the patients and their, and their counts and be prepared to potentially you know, dose modify based on counts. I would also say treat through cytopenias too. Um, and I think that's a common mistake that's made in the community in which, you know, the hemoglobin drops, particularly with ruxolitin, for example, in the first two to three months. And, and the tendency is to really pull back on the dose and you sort of, you know, you, you compromise um, the, the uh, activity of the drug. Um, and you know, the idea is to try to maintain the dose, maybe transfuse through that period, because usually the, the hemoglobin will settle down about one gram per deciliter from where you started. So, sort of understanding the on-target treatment effects might also help um, optimize the delivery of the drug. But as you said, optimization is, is key as is dose intensity. So being aware of the side effects and knowing when you can treat through them is obviously an important point here. Yep. All right. So now we'll take a look at some questions uh, that were submitted by the audience uh, during our discussion. So first, is there an optimal time to initiate JAK inhibitor therapy to optimize patient outcomes and, and reduce risks? Really, uh, this is a really challenging uh, issue. So I don't think we know the answer to that fully, actually. I mean, I, th I think we, we tend to use, as you pointed out, the risk stratification tool. So higher risk patients are patients that we would consider for JAK inhibitor therapy. I would argue, though, if you have a low risk patient who's Quite symptomatic, maybe with bone pains that may not trigger an upscore in their in their in their prognostic um, scoring system. 
and or fatigue, you know, which can be MF-related symptoms, you may employ a JAK inhibitor, even in low-risk patients. So I think being aware of the symptom burden, aware of the spleen, sort of dictates the need for JAK inhibition. The optimal timing, you know, may be as early as possible, actually. We don't know that for sure. If you look at the survival outcome data from the comfort studies, it would suggest that the earlier you start the JAK inhibitor, ruxolitib in that case, the, the better the survival impact. Um, there was a study called the Rethink study that was done a number of years ago in, in the UK. Unfortunately, that study stopped due to low accrual, but it was an important study that was looking at whether um, one should be treating lower risk patients with high molecular risk features earlier on to, to sort of optimize the effect of JAK inhibitors, maybe, maybe prolong the durability of response. So I think it is common that patients often, uh, maybe, maybe less so today than 10 years ago, but are often delayed in starting a JAK inhibitor. So I think it's important to have that conversation uh, and be, again, realistic about the potential benefits, um, but the, the, also the potential toxicities and the expectations of goals of therapy. But I would say probably in most patients, you know, earlier on in the disease course is probably where you're going to optimize JAK inhibition. Right. And coming back to, again, the principle from the beginning, which is that the IPSs and the IPSs are not the things that tell us when to initiate uh, therapy, an uh, important point. Let's move on to our, our next section now. And the next section is, what are the side effects associated with JAK inhibitor use in myelofibrosis and how can they be managed? So to level set our, our conversation, we let's break this down into the adverse events that we see with JAK inhibitors, uh, hematologically and non-hematologically. As we've been talking about already with regards to hematologic toxicity, we know that anemia and thrombocytopenia are on target effects of JAK inhibition uh, based on the mechanism of action. Um, and you know, clearly, if we look at uh, all uh, grades of anemia, it, it's certainly not in a small proportion of patients who are going to have anemia as a result of uh, being on a JAK inhibitor. Uh, you know, we're talking about almost 45% in some studies. And thrombocytopenia, the same thing. And as you pointed out, there are some differences between the, you know, the different uh, JAK inhibitors uh, that, that we have at our disposal. And thrombocytopenia of any grade really can be somewhere in the range of 13 to 30% or so. So things that, you've, as you've already pointed out, we need to be aware of. The non-hematologic AEs, though, do differ. And you know, with ruxolitinib, a variety of things have been seen. Weight gain, uh, peripheral edema, fatigue, uh, rarely GI side effects. Uh, and occasionally bruising and bleeding. With fedratinib, we know that there are GI side effects, typically nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, uh, as well as uh, fatigue, uh, which can be seen with any of these drugs. And, and with picritinib, also GI side effects can be seen earlier on. So uh, nausea and diarrhea principally, occasionally peripheral edema, uh, and, and again, fatigue comes up. So let's, uh, let's talk about some of the questions that have been submitted by our audience that focus on how we manage the side effects associated with the JAK inhibitors that we use. So the first question, John, is are, are the key treatment-related adverse events reported in the JAK inhibitor pivotal trials uh, in myelofibrosis observed in the real world, and, and how do you manage them? So I, I think for the most part, the, the, what we saw in the clinical trials for both for all three, ruxolitinib, fedratinib, and picritinib, are what you see in real life when you're using these drugs. I think our understanding of how to optimize the patients is better today than it was probably when we were um, participating in these phase three studies. So for example, the GI toxicity that can be seen in you know, probably 40 to 50% of patients with both fedratinib and picritinib, we, we should highlight is low grade in the majority of those patients. It's usually grade one, two, nausea, diarrhea, maybe upset stomach. I, it's very easy to manage. I mean, in, for hematologist oncologists that 
frequently give drugs that are associated with GI toxicity. This is not really severe GI toxicity. It's usually within the first couple of cycles. Um, an antiemetic or antidiarrheal is usually very effective in helping those patients that do have these side effects. And typically by the third month of therapy, I, I really find that patients actually need any kind of supportive therapy, but it's always good to have, um, have those there. So I think, you know, just being aware of the side effects, prepping the patient for them, if the patient does not expect to get, you know, some nausea or diarrhea after taking their JAK inhibitor, that could really throw them off. They may interpret that as failure of the drug. Um, but if you sort of uh, make sure you highlight that that's a possible toxicity, I think it's less less of an obstacle for most patients. Um, and then, you know, in the in the in those rare cases where the the toxicity might be very severe, being aware of that for dose modification purposes, I think, is important. But I I typically will treat patients through, try to maintain the dose intensity, and provide supportive care with antiemetics and antidiarrheals. And and the other thing I'll just point out is, you know, there is one uh, you know one side effect that is that is particular to fedratinib and has a black box warning, which is the Wernicke's encephalopathy. I personally feel it's an overblown toxicity, but um, it is one that came out when uh, the, the full data set from safety of over 600 patients was looked at. And there were probably around eight patients that looked like they had a Wernicke's-like type picture, probably one that was really confirmed. Nevertheless, um, there is a black box warning that prescribers should be aware of. Um, check a thiamine level, so vitamin B1 at baseline. And then uh, ideally every three months, or you make yourself and your life very easy and just give a, a vitamin B complex. And, and really, I, I've not had that um, be an issue or, or lead to treatment discontinuation. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so we've, we've talked about what we can expect. And, and of course, some of these side effects we know will happen out of the gate, but things could happen a little bit later in the course. So that being said, how do you monitor for JAK inhibitor-related uh, side effects in patients with myelofibrosis? So getting counts is, is the obvious one. You know, when you start a JAK inhibitor, I, for one, will, will likely bring the patient back um, for a blood count check, usually within a week or two, because patients are, as you pointed out, they're not monolithic. Patients will present in different ways and can react to JAK inhibitors in different ways. Some patients are more sensitive and they can drop their counts more precipitously. So I try to catch that early on, follow the counts and the trajectory of those counts, be prepared to potentially, again, transfuse for a hemoglobin or low platelet count to maintain that dose intensity when possible. Um, and then, you know, check in with the patient or at least have a, a call in with the patient to make sure they're not experiencing the nausea and diarrhea, particularly with our older patients where volume depletion can lead to weakness, dizziness, potentially falls, and, and those patients can be vulnerable to those issues. Um, so a, a, again, I would argue though, in a field of hemoc where we give very intensive therapies that can be quite toxic, this is really on the low end of toxicity. But if you're not on top of it, it can be problematic, particularly for certain vulnerable patient population. Another question here is, you know, does the mechanism of action of the JAK inhibitors influence what we, uh, the treatment-related side effects that we anticipate to see in the patient? To some extent. I mean, I think we're still, we're still learning. Um, I don't think we fully understand each drug and, and the kinome profiles and how it relates to both the, the clinical efficacy and the toxicity. I think mean, there are Certain um, aspects of these drugs that are probably clear, like FLT3 inhibition, uh, is more likely to be associated with GI toxicity, and that we see with picritinib and fedratinib. You know, whether there is um, a specific aspect of fedratinib that would explain its Wernicke's encephalopathy, I think it's been postulated that maybe, you know, the, the, the structure of the drug is, is similar to, to vitamin B1. Perhaps that affects um, uptake of uh, thiamine. Um, but I, I, you know, I think the the other things that you know may or may not um, 
matter, and, and you've, you've been involved in work uh, that relates to whether JAK1, JAK2 makes a difference. So they're all JAK2 inhibitors, but both picritinib um, and, and for the most part, fedratinib spare JAK1. Unclear to me exactly the, the relevance in the clinical setting, although you know, I think maybe you could speak to whether that really has an effect on the, on the, on the stem cell itself and maybe the uh, immunosuppressive uh, issues. Well, right. And I think that that's, that's sort of an important point because we haven't talked too much about uh, infectious complications, but certainly we see a reactivation of zoster. We've seen uh, you know, TB reactivation in, in certain patients. Um, and does that relate to, to JAK1 inhibition since JAK1 inhibition uh, does play a role in uh, NK cell function as an example, right? Um, so I think that you know there is at least preclinical data to support the idea that JAK1 inhibition has some bearing on uh, you know I- immunosuppression. I think you know there's at least some degree of data comparing uh, infectious complications, for example, with picritinib versus uh, ruxolitinib. But I don't think we have a broad set of data as yet to compare. But certainly that is a reasonable hypothesis. And, and the the last thing I'll add is that. Um... For JAK inhibitors in general, there has been a concern about cardiovascular risk, and this really stems from work in the rheumatologic diseases with the drugs like Celgens that are used there. I, I, I would make the argument that we don't really see a signal that's convincing to me that these drugs in our patient population really puts them at risk or significant risk for cardiovascular uh, complications. So just something to, to consider when prescribing this, these drugs. Yeah, no, definitely concur on that. All right, so now let's uh, d- t- go address some questions that have come in from the audience. First, you know, how can the dose of JAK inhibitors be adjusted following the onset of uh, side effects in patients with myelofibrosis? And maybe we'll, we'll uh, d- give some granularity to that and maybe divide that into hematologic and non-hematologic. Well, you know, as we've been saying, we, we do expect some degree of hematologic toxicity with all three, but you know, particularly I would say ruxolitinib um, and to some extent fedratinib. Um, so checking those those blood counts, um, and and at least with ruxolitinib, you know, reducing the dose of ruxolitinib from 15 to 10 milligrams if the platelet count is really dropping in a precipitous fashion. Um, and with fedratinib, I, you know, I, I have to say I do kind of tend to treat through. Um, the, the ease of fedratinib is you can pull back a capsule, you know, to go to 300 milligrams very easily. You don't need to get a new script, at least in the U.S., uh, for a different dosing strategy, which makes it a little bit easier. But in general, you know, I'm, I'm trying to maintain dose intensity for hematologic toxicity and treat through them unless it's extreme and really affecting the patient in an, in an adverse way. For the non-heme toxicity, um, you know, it, supportive care um, and then dose modifications, I think if supportive care is not, uh, is not really working or if the toxicity is really significant, if you're getting grade three, four nausea and diarrhea that's breaking through, you know, um, Lodanstron, and you know that might be reason to to dose reduce. For example, from 400, 300, or 200 of uh, fedratinib. I will say though that you know I'm 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 also inclined to re-escalate the dose after a while. If you get someone to 200 milligrams of fedratinib, which is actually an effective dose, and I have patients who who have done very well on lower doses of fedratinib, I will over time see if I can reintroduce the dose and upside it. Because sometimes what happens is. For reasons I don't think I can ex- unexplain uh, biologically, you can get back up to the effective dose and escape some of the toxicities that might have been present earlier. So let's go on to our, our last section for our discussion today and talk about what are the options following treatment failure on a first-line JAK inhibitor in patients with myelofibrosis. There isn't a standard way to think about what treatment failure means in myelofibrosis, but one can reasonably make an argument that you could divide this into patients who have no response 
and those are patients who aren't getting a spleen response by length or volume of the spleen and no symptom response initially. There are the patients who have loss of response, and these are patients who initially had a response of some degree uh, in terms of spleen or symptom, but then progressively lose those uh, responses. There are the patients who just have frank progression of disease, right? And uh, this is um, this is the toughest uh, patient population to treat, and uh, unfortunately, it's the most obvious to patients who have you know, progression to accelerated or blast phase uh, disease uh, in the first few months of therapy. And, and then there is the issue of intolerance, and this perhaps is best thought of as an inability to use the dose that you uh, the, the best dose you need to use to control the disease. So let's talk about some of the questions uh, with regard to uh, how we deal with lack of success in the first line with JAK inhibitors. First thing is, how should JAK inhibitors be sequenced in, in clinical practice, and what are the considerations when choosing a second-line JAK inhibitor in patients with myelofibrosis following first-line uh, failure? Well, I think it's you know it's it's probably obvious to most people that ruxolitinib tends to be the first drug used when treating a patient with a JAK inhibitor. Um, and, and for good reason, it's been around for a long time. There's a lot of comfort level and experience with ruxolitinib. Um, and pacritinib really kind of takes care of the patients with lower platelet count. So for the majority of patients, probably ruxolitinib is going to be approved first, is going to be used first. Although I will point out that fidratinib is approved agnostic to line of therapy. So one could use fidratinib first. Reasons why you may use fidratinib over ruxolitinib could be uh, surrounding maybe even weight gain or even concerns about infectious risk um, that have been brought up with uh, ruxolitinib that may not be the same with fidratinib. Um, I think the data that we have would suggest that fidratinib is a great second line option because we do have Jakarta 2 that demonstrates, you know, um, by stringent criteria, 30% SVR rate, 30% TSS rate as a second line JAK inhibitor in those that have failed either are refractory to or intolerant to uh, ruxolitinib. So we have data going from ruxolitinib to fidratinib. We have data going from ruxolitinib to pacritinib from the PERSIST-2 study. But what we really don't have is data going from pacritinib or fidratinib to ruxolitinib in reverse. So, you know, for whatever that's worth, um, in in that context, you know, ruxolitinib tends to be the first drug used if we're you know, experiencing loss of response or progressive disease or intolerance. Then you have kind of confidence that you have evidence-based data to back using fidratinib, for example, as a second-line agent, or as NCCN now endorses, even pacritinib, irrespective of the platelet count. How do you actually make that switch? Are we, you know, do you have to de-escalate? Let's take the scenario to make it easy of ruxolitinib, because as you pointed out, this is the most frequently first-line used therapy. How do you transition somebody, practically speaking, from ruxolitinib to either fidratinib or pacritinib? You know, like most of our conversation has been centered, you really have to individualize that plan to the patient based on the patient variables, the dose that the patient's on of ruxolitinib. Um, one thing I do not do is I don't do a washout like we do in clinical trials, because um, although that makes sense in the context of evaluating a clinical trial for an outcome for regulatory purposes, in the practical management of patients with myelofibrosis, you really don't want weeks to go by where they're not on a JAK inhibitor, because even when patients are quote unquote failing ruxolitinib, if you pull that rug out from underneath them, they will likely do very poorly. Um, and you and I both have seen patients have you know, quite significant cytokine rebound and withdrawal effect, and sometimes even to the point where it could be fatal. So um, I don't do a washout. I will often try to taper the ruxolitinib down to at least 10 twice a day, if not lower, over the course of a week or so. 
And then I personally will overlap the pedratinib, for example, by a day or two um, and start at 400 milligrams. So I don't titrate up the dose of pedratinib. I start at 400 milligrams um, and and make the, the the transition in that way. And I'm I'm quick to use some prednisone if I think maybe there's some flare while pedratinib is taking time to work. I will say that you have to be patient. Um, sometimes that patient doesn't really enjoy the benefit of pedratinib, for example, within the first weeks of that switch. So I'm, I, I will coach patients through that and and sort of um, you know provide that support um, for them to understand that maybe that benefit will take a little bit longer and maybe we got to really give it a good three months or so before we say it's not really working. I, an important point in terms of the expectations with the jack inhibitors are all a little bit different in terms of spleen, but mostly symptom response, I would say. So level setting is, is obviously important. Another question has come in, what, uh, what are the second line treatment options for myofibrosis beyond jack inhibitors? So there's a lot going on in the clinical research uh, area, which you know very well. And um, we're moving on, we're moving beyond, you know, a, a jack inhibitor monotherapy approach, which I think is really exciting and, and, is, and is due. Um, so drugs that affect BET inhibitors um, or BET proteins like BET inhibitors like palabrasib, um, BCL2, BCLX inhibitors like nabitoclax, telomerase inhibitors like imetalstat, um, uh, MDM2 inhibitors that upregulate the P53 pathway, which is very relevant, um, like naftamadolin. So there are a number of different um, approaches. These, what, what is really, I think, um, satisfying to see is to watch how the preclinical data, the laboratory data, really inform these approaches. So they're really, they're really um, uh, rational approaches. And now, increasingly, these approaches are combination-based approaches. So you know, using these active agents that have demonstrated monotherapy uh, activity in combination with ruxolitinib, for example, even earlier on, not waiting for them to fail. So a great example is palabrasib plus rux in a JAK inhibitor naive uh, space, trying to bring that benefit earlier on. But I will even set, you know, throw out there that drugs like loose patercept, uh, which is a, an active in ligand trap, part of the TGF beta superfamily, um, is, a, is an agent that can um, provide anemia responses. And right now the independent study is looking at um, loose patercept plus RUX. So it's an interesting concept. It's, it's not that the RUX is not working. It's just to get that trifecta of spleen symptom and then anemia adding on, layering on loose patercept as a subcutaneous injection um, to ruxolinib to improve that effect. But I think we're looking at a, a, a future where we will have various options um, to address various niches of patients in which different combinations where maybe different goals of therapy, um, you know, will, will help uh, identify which combination is optimal. But there's no question that this is an exciting time in this field. And to have these options, even things like, you know, loose patercept that are uh, readily available in the clinic, it, it makes a difference. So some questions have come in. Let's talk about those. How can JAK inhibitors be combined with other therapies in the second line setting to optimize outcome uh, in myelofibrosis? We've talked a little bit about this already. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to point out that um, outside of clinical trials, if you have someone who's on ruxolinib who's not succeeding or who did succeed with spleen and symptom benefit and now is, is losing that, fidratinib is an approved option that's commercially available, which doesn't require one to necessarily go to a tertiary cancer center for a clinical trial because that's not, that, that's not um, you know, an option for a lot of patients. We have to kind of accept that. So, so, you know, being aware of commercially available second-line options, even within the first class. Now, if if uh, fidratinib is not an option or one is looking for therapies uh, beyond that, 
Um, there are a lot of uh, trials that are ongoing that can get. For example, one example is naptamadolin in combination with Bruxelib, in which phase 1b data would suggest very active combination, both from a clinical standpoint, spleen and symptom, but also from a correlative standpoint in terms of you know, reduction of biomarkers that we think are relevant, like bone marrow fibrosis reduction, uh, driver mutation VAF reduction, and um, circulating CU34 cell reduction. So a lot of cool stuff looking at um, second line combination options. And then, you know, I would say lastly, for those patients where maybe survival is the, you know, is the endpoint of interest in Metalstat in the impact MF study, which is ongoing, takes patients who are uh, refractory to and now relapsed uh, from a JAK inhibitor and randomizes them to a Metalstat, which is a uh, infusional agent every three weeks to best available therapy, which excludes a JAK inhibitor with a primary endpoint of survival. So really for the first time, we're really looking at endpoints that, that obviously matter to patients and their loved ones like living longer. Um, and to me, that's, that, that's very gratifying because for quite some time we've been focused on spleen and symptom, which is not unimportant, but survival is, is really an important endpoint that um, we need to pay attention to. Paramount, right? Absolutely. Another question that's come in, and it's certainly a complicated question, are there risk factors that may influence JAK inhibitor failure in certain patients with myelofibrosis? Again, this is one of those questions I'm not sure I can fully answer because I don't know that we have the data to back it up. I think there is increasing data that mutational complexity probably will predict for patients who won't enjoy the full benefit or duration of benefit with ruxolinib, for example. So uh, high molecular risk mutations like ASXL1, EZH2, the IDH mutations, SRSF2, U2AF1, P53 mutations. These are patients that are, are probably less likely to enjoy the full benefit of a JAK inhibitor um, and or the, the, the full duration of JAK inhibitor benefit. How to exploit that for our purposes is not really, I think, well-defined. I mean, I think that's an important research question. And as you and I have discussed many times, what we really need to be looking at going forward as these drugs are potentially approved is are there, are there molecular signatures that help us decide up front and second line which drugs are most appropriate? Absolutely. And, and you know, I think your, your point is absolutely well taken. We, we need uh, more uh, uh, data here for sure. We know certain things that the more mutations you have, it seems that predicts for earlier treatment failure with ruxolitinib. So more to be learned here and, and more to think about as we get more therapies in the clinic. So, um, John, I'd like to thank you for a terrific uh, conversation. We've covered a lot of uh, ground today, and I'd like to thank the audience for participating. I really hope you enjoyed the session and found our uh, insights useful. Thank you, Professor John Mascarenas and Dr. Rajit Rompel, for your practical insights for myelofibrosis clinicians. And thank you to our audience for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access further content on this topic on Touch Hematology at www.touchhematology.com.